0: This podcast was originally recorded in December, 2021. Hey everyone, this is Tony Dow and welcome to the official OCPHA podcast, where we interview our pharmacy professionals about their journey into their specialized fields. And today we're going to be speaking with our special guest, Dr. Cody Peterson, on what his role is and how he got into this uh, world pharmacy. So thank you again for being on the show, Cody. How are you doing today?
1: Hey, Tony, so glad to be here. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm doing great. Uh, this is my off-stretch, uh, as I am a, an overnight pharmacist. I work seven days on and seven days off in the emergency department. So anytime I'm on my off-stretch, you tend to get a, a more, let's just say, uh, <laughs> energetic answer uh, about how I'm doing today. I'm great, Tony. Thanks for having me.
0: Awesome. Awesome. So, you know, just for our listeners to kind of get to know you a little bit better before we kind of get into specific details about your journey and, you know, what what other things you're doing now, uh, can you kind of tell the listeners a little bit about yourself?
1: Absolutely. So, uh, I live here in Orange County. Uh, go figure, right? <laughs> Given the podcast, that makes sense. Uh, and I'm a pediatric pharmacist at, at Children's Hospital Orange County. Uh, and I was trained in Phoenix, Arizona, where I spent five years moving about uh, Phoenix Children's Hospital. And before that, I was educated at Duquesne University, uh, where I got my my
0: PharmD. Awesome. So, so I this, I know this is going to go back a little bit further, but um, one of the questions I like to ask to is like, why did you, you know, why did you decide that pharmacy was the career path that you wanted to pursue?
1: It's a good question. So, I didn't think I wanted to be a pharmacist until the last hour uh, of high school or that decision time, I should say. Um, and what happened is, is my big sister is a pharmacist. She's significantly older than me, uh, almost 17 years. So, I, I didn't really, you know, know her very well, believe it or not. But as I, you know, Came into this idea of starting a profession. I was, I had the luxury of shadowing her. She was a director of pharmacy. So I got to see multiple roles within her department. And I decided that I liked this. It's, you know, it's a communication based degree, which is something I've always been, uh, I don't want to say maybe known for is, is yammering on about things I'm passionate about. So communication, I think is a uh, critical skill of a pharmacist. And so leveraging that plus an interest in Science, chemistry, pharmacology, uh, pharmacy turned out to be a perfect fit.
0: So, so th- today you're working, you know, at a pediatric hospital. I mean, you're, you're my coworker. Yeah, exactly.
1: So. <laughs> you're my IT pharmacist. I send you all sorts of tickets.
0: Yeah. So, so I, I guess like the question is, uh, when did you decide that pediatrics was something that you wanted to pursue?
1: It's a great question too. Um, so I had some adult intern experience, uh, as well as some pediatric intern experience back at Pittsburgh Children's Hospital. And I really discovered that I have far more empathy for a pediatric patient population. Um, there's just nothing that the, the child did to get themselves into that situation, whereas um, an adult who may have some sort of osteoarthritis that they could have maybe prevented or done a better job of of um, maybe not letting it get away from them. Is a little more of a conscious effort, and so I find uh, my relationship with pediatrics to be a much more empathetic and and caring relationship as opposed to adults where I, I tend to feel a little bit jaded if I'm being honest.
0: I see, I see. so so then when did you kind of get that experience? like I, I guess like what was the process of you getting into pediatric pharmacy from you know when you were an intern?
1: Yeah, honestly, Tony, luck. Uh, so I wanted to be a Indian health service pharmacist. And so I pursued that and pursued residency with the IHS, but didn't match. But it turned out while I was on this residency pursuit, uh, I just so happened to drop an application into Phoenix Children's Hospital, who just so happened to have the right new leader who was looking for, I, I would say, young, moldable minds um, with the right experience. And that just happened to be me. So Yolanda Douthard took me under her wing. Uh, in San's residency, I started practicing pediatrics and rapidly worked my way up through general pediatrics to working on the floor in the ICU and emergency department. And then I transitioned here uh, to my current role in Orange County.
0: Okay, cool. And actually, I had a question about that too. I was always curious, like what decided, what made you decide to kind of move over to uh, Orange County?
1: Challenge? Change? Uh, stir crazy. I don't know. Uh, that's sort of my personality, right? I mean, I decided to up and leave Pittsburgh to the other side of the country where I have no family as well. Uh, which is great because I met my wife and, and, you know, all the beautiful growth that happens with uprooting yourself. And so I've seen my myself do that multiple times. I know I've done some cool, had some cool experiences in Alaska where I was a pharmacy intern and before that worked on a salmon fishery. So I guess One of the things I've derived most, or how about this? The things that have provided the most insight into my life and the most growth are the ones where I've pushed myself outside of my comfort zone. Uh, And, you know, moving to California was partially that and partially, you know, uh, hop, skip and a jump towards the ocean, which isn't a bad thing either.
0: Awesome. So I'm also curious. So you've practiced pediatrics, uh, you know, outside of California for, for a good amount of time before you came here. Is there a difference in practice, you know, over there versus like what you've seen here in Orange County?
1: Well, I mean, I think every hospital has its its strengths and its weaknesses. Um, I, generally speaking, no, I don't think that there's a, a large difference in the practice. I mean, kids are kids, and we tend to see the similar diseases and similar injuries. Um, Phoenix had a little wider spread on sort of the emergencies that might come to it, um, because it is a much more sort of, uh, remote location. If you think about Phoenix, it's a big city in the middle of an expansive desert. Whereas over here, we're a, you know, we're a big city here in Orange County or a big county, but we're in the middle of a major metro with lots of other hospitals. So we definitely see some different things, but I mean, the practice of pediatrics uh, very similar. Uh, yeah, like almost, indistinguishable in many ways.
0: I see. I see. So, you know, some of the listeners here, they, they're interested in getting into pediatrics, uh, but, you know, sometimes they may not understand what it is on the day-to-day that, you know, someone in pediatrics would do. Can you kind of go over like your, your day-to-day activities as a pediatric pharmacist?
1: Absolutely. And I guess it's important to know my day-to-day is emergency department, right? So emergency medicine is what my day-to-day looks like. So, I mean, (laughs) I see a lot of appendicitis, a lot of nausea, vomiting, (laughs) and things like that. But I think zooming out to what a pediatric pharmacist does that is different than the adult pharmacist is – it's a – well, A, it's your, your dosing based on weight, right? So that's the number one difference, right? So you always have to be paying attention to how old is the patient I'm, I'm dealing with and how large are they? But then the second, and I think the biggest difference between adults and pediatrics, uh, aside from maybe that empathy piece that I mentioned earlier, is the ability or the comfortability with practicing in a gray area. Perhaps the biggest distinguishing thing between pediatrics and adults is we don't have data because it turns out it's ethically questionable to study drugs in children. And so in order to provide care while trying to, you know, do no harm and all of those things we've, we've obliged to do as pharmacists, there's a lot of reading between the lines, extrapolating from adult data. um, And frankly, you know, doing what you think is most clinically appropriate, even in the absence of good data.
0: I see. I see. So you know, like, you know, having this experience in pediatric, you've been doing this for a while. And, you know, one of the newer ventures I've, I've kind of noticed that you've been doing too is um, on the medical cannabis side. And, um, you know, just before we get into more detailed questions about that, can you kind of just give an overview of like, you know, basic high level medical cannabis info?
1: Absolutely. So medical cannabis is my passion and it is now my area of study. So I'm attending the University of Maryland School of Pharmacies program uh, and it's medical cannabis science and therapeutics, the first master's degree of its kind in the United States. So let's just kind of start there. That's that's sort of where I'm going in cannabis. Uh, But to speak to high-level cannabis or cannabis as medicine, we have to look back backwards, right? We can't really look at right now because right now there's still even a question of whether it is medicine, at least according to our federal government. However, if we look back historically, only 100 years ago before 1942, cannabis tincture or, or extract was indeed on the US pharmacopoeia and a pharmacopoeia, excuse me. And there is no doubt that cannabis is medicine. That's not just my opinion. This has been long established. If we go back 10,000 years, we can find evidence of this in particularly medical cannabis, 5,000 years. It's in some of the earliest pharmacopoeias written down and documented in in ancient China. And it moved across the world through Egypt and through Europe um, and and, uh, Eurasia, all over the world for thousands of years, Uh, People were using cannabis and its, uh, you know, many uses, whether that's fiber or for uh, recreation or for medicine. Uh, Cannabis has long been part of human culture. And only in the last hundred years, again, starting in really the 1930s, has prohibition been the state of cannabis. Before that, Eli Lilly. Had a tincture of cannabis available on the market, prescribable by doctors. In fact, uh, there's some speculation, or, or you know, the data wasn't good. But it's commonly cited that this cannabis was the third most common prescription in America.
0: Wow, I did not know a lot of those facts. <laughs> there's oh. a lot of
1: history here that's been stifled.
0: Yeah. So, so I guess, like, uh, what is your goal? Like, just being focused on this uh, this path right now.
1: I want cannabis to be well. A, recognized as medicine, because cannabis is medicine. I want to make sure that patients have access to that medicine, but that doesn't mean just access to the medicine itself. We've actually sort of achieved that in many states. What we really need to focus on now is access for patients to reliable health, for like science-forward information, particularly provided by healthcare professionals. Cannabis would be the only medicine you're not entitled the right to counsel from a pharmacist. How, how are we going to say it's medicine and we're going to say, oh, but you don't go to the pharmacy. You must go to a doctor to get a recommendation, but you have to go to the dispensary and talk to Bob, who's got a high school diploma. So we need to put the pharmacist back in the equation right where we were in apothecaries before 1942, when against the will of the doctors and pharmacists, the federal government removed it from the U.S. pharmacopoeia, and then, obviously, as you probably know, in the 1970s, declared war on drugs, and we're happy to include cannabis in that war.
0: Yeah, so that's that's an interesting thing. So you, you're you're mentioning like uh, dispensaries, uh, so. I'm not really familiar with any kind of regulations or anything like that. So are there any kind of like product regulations or cannabis like quality regulations that dispensaries have to follow anything, any audits they have to go through to even like, you know, dispense these things? It seems a little bit like it's not... Re- not highly, uh, I guess, regulate as, you know, what a pharmacy would, right? Sure. We
1: said it's medicine. California was the first state in the U.S. to declare cannabis as medicine in 1996, 25 years ago. And in that time, 47 states have now put some degree of medical cannabis uh, law on the books, whether that's THC or low THC or CBD only. They have some sort of law in the last 25 years and obviously initiated by California and california has plenty of standards as far as quality uh as far as like potency testing you know testing for for pesticides and heavy metals in these products but there is not the type of quality or study or privacy or you know a lot of things that come with prescription medications that we would be accustomed to in pharmacy however that's California. If you look across the country, every state, because of federal prohibition, is limited to build up their own industry. And so in the state of California, that's what we have. But if you go to the state of Pennsylvania, you've actually got a mandate that a pharmacist must sign off on every prescription of cannabis. So there's a pharmacist behind the counter signing labels on on, you know, little vials of herbal cannabis in the same way you would expect at a CVS. Uh, or Walgreens. And I can go around. Virginia has a, has a pharmacist mandate. New York State did, but they're going recreational. Um, Ohio proposed it, but it got snipped from the law because uh, it turns out that large pharma, uh, cannabis companies aren't very interested in paying pharmacist wages.
0: I see. Oh, that's interesting. So it's just not standardized right now um, across the US, right?
1: Yeah, thanks to federal prohibition, which says that this substance is uh, highly addicting and has no therapeutic value, which is laughable because there's a THC FDA approved product and a CBD FDA approved product. Both both cannabinoids were originally found in the cannabis plant. Um, so it, it's it's pretty laughable, this, the state of affairs.
0: So, uh, I guess like you kind of touch upon this, but I, I guess like what do you see kind of like the role of a pharmacist within medical cannabis in addition to like the things you said, you know, like counseling and, um, you know, making sure that the, the patient really understands the, the medication that they're having. Like what, what kind of other roles do you kind of see the pharmacist play?
1: Every role, Tony, (laughs) every role possible because cannabis is a medicine, right? So from everything from even uh, quality control measures from the farm to the patient, uh, from those counseling situations, sure. But there's also now data coming out in pharmacist led cannabis clinics. Where a patient uh, will come to the pharmacist rather than, you know, to a doctor, uh, confer with them about which product they've been using, maybe which product they should consider using, how to use it, how regularly to use it. And that pharmacist-led initiative can then be charged for service in the same way that we do sort of MTM style work, we can absolutely integrate cannabis. And then there's, there's so much more beyond that on the you know, the sort of uh, business side where the, the pharmacist can play so many important roles. Um, but oftentimes, and no surprise, it, it's a communication role or an understanding and a translatory role, which is what a pharmacist has always done, taking complex science and converted it into understandable, digestible, or applicable information.
0: And, you know, like, you also brought up, like, how they did the war on drugs that included cannabis in it. And I'm just curious, like, from your opinion, like, why do you think they targeted cannabis if there's so much value uh, in using it for therapeutic treatment?
1: Well, to try to leave politics aside as much as I can, there is no good reason. Uh, There have been multiple federal commissioned reports Numerous. Uh, one was the La- LaGuardia report. There was a report in the 1920s, the 1940s, the 1960s, and the 1980s that all suggested that cannabis should not be regulated like these other harmful substances like crack or or cocaine or in any of these other substances that have now created tremendous problems in our country. Think about this. Cannabis is a schedule one substance, but yet it has no known toxic dose, is less addicting than than benzos and opioids, which all fall into schedule two or schedule three. So I can't tell you why they thought that this herb that grows in the ground that can cause a mild uh, euphoria and can cause uh, addiction in some folks is is such a problem. We let folks drink alcohol and alcohol is killing hundreds of thousands of people a year. We let folks smoke cigarettes and it's killing millions of people uh, globally every year, seven or eight million actually. So I don't really have a good answer for you, Tony. I just know that it's inappropriate and it needs to change.
0: Thanks for sharing that opinion. And, you know, like I, yeah, I don't really know a lot about this and I'm learning a lot of it from you right now. So it's, it's really interesting to hear. Uh, you did also mention, I, I didn't want to touch on this too. You said that, you know, we, we do have some FDA approved medications that kind of derive from cannabis. Uh, do they have any kind of like studies out there in which the original cannabis plant is, is studied as like the primary treatment, like as a whole, um, uh, you know, not just the components of it, but the actual cannabis itself, you know?
1: Absolutely. We, we have a lot of studies. In fact, there's far more studies than you've been led to believe, Tony. And, and the problem becomes is none of them meet the rigor demanded by the Western medical establishment of double blind placebo controlled randomized. Why? Because there's no money in patenting cannabis. So that type of study is very challenging. So what ends up happening is we get weaker data, data that is, is somewhat dismissed by Western medicine because it doesn't meet the scientific rigor that we demand. Um, And because again, there is no patent available, that sort of, you know, 10, $20 million study, you know, good luck. What we have seen though, is we've seen a tremendous amount of money put into studying the harms of of marijuana use. And just to, for those listening, I guess to, to square it away and you may not know this, cannabis is a plant cannabis makes many different bioactive molecules, but there's two that are mostly of interest, right? That's THC, tetrahydrocannabinol. That's the intoxicating CB1, CB2 agonist. So those are activators of your endocannabinoid system, which we can talk about in just a second. And then you have uh, CBD, which is a much more complicated pharmacologic agent that has a lot of different actions in the body. But the reason I bring that up is in 2018, the feds made a big pivot on what is legal and what is not illegal. They declared hemp legal and uh, marijuana still federally legal Schedule 1. And hemp is any cannabis plant that has produces less than 0.3% THC by dry weight. OK, so that, that was kind of a mouthful. But what I'm trying to say is you, you know, folks and, and uh, farmers, et cetera, can now legally grow cannabis as long as that cannabis is not the drug type marijuana, which is greater than 0.3 percent THC, um, which is which is an arbitrary number and frankly, too low. Um, and it's it's inhibiting proper growth in the industry but that <laughs> you can listen to one of my other podcasts for that that section.
0: That's awesome. So, um, I was going to ask you, you know, if someone wanted to learn more or, you know, get into knowing more about the medical cannabis side or, I mean, even talking about ED pediatric pharmacy, like what's the best way that they can can reach you or do you have any like resources that you can kind of point them to?
1: Well, I'm all over LinkedIn and frankly, if you're not and you're a pharmacist listening to this, you should be because I've never seen my career grow as fast as it has just by getting on LinkedIn and posting a little bit. So um, I highly encourage anyone listening to do that and follow me on that platform where you'll learn all about the endocannabinoid system. Uh, beyond that, I do have a, a personal website, D Approved, um, where I help do some B2B work. And then if you have a, a family friend who maybe needs some counseling or help finding a coach, I can do that for them. And then uh, maybe most pertinently, and I, what I think can provide the most benefit to the public, which is my primary aim is. To educate the public and healthcare professionals about cannabis medicine. Uh, it's canigma.com. So I work for an Israeli startup um, whose whose primary objective is to destigmatize, normalize conversations around cannabis. And so that's Canigma, that's C-A-N-N-I-G-M-A.com. Uh, there's a ton of information there, and you'll see, see a lot of work written by me or reviewed by me.
0: Awesome. So so do you have any particular advice, I guess, for, for people who are looking into getting into the field of either ED pediatric pharmacy or getting into the field of, you know, um, expanding the role of pharmacist into medical cannabis?
1: I have so much advice. <laughs> um, let's try to keep it simple. So number one is whatever work position you find yourself in. You need to volunteer for projects. You need to say, I, "I would like to do that," or "I would like to learn how to do that." Can I? Can I get involved? And and that's the only way you're going to grow. It's, it's how I'm growing. Uh, I continue to grow as a pharmacist working with Tony on IT projects that uh, if I would have just kept my mouth shut, I would have never done. So that's number one. Number two, I already mentioned LinkedIn. I highly recommend it. I'm not gonna not gonna harp on that. Um, and number three, go reading. Go to PubMed and learn about the endocannabinoid system. This is going to blow your mind and change your whole perspective as a practitioner and really open us up, not just to cannabis. Cannabis is a therapeutic that can be used to target the endocannabinoid system. But the endocannabinoid system, which is this incredible cellular communication device in all mammals on planet Earth, including you and me, is we can leverage this for health and wellness we know that exercise modulates your endocannabinoid system we know that singing we know that that uh you know doing philanthropic things and donating things likely mediates the acs so if we start to consider the ecs we can just become healthier humans and therefore or help our patients become healthier humans by encouraging them to do healthful activities
0: Awesome! Thanks, uh, thanks so much for sharing that advice, and you know all your your information like the LinkedIn and the other websites. I'll be putting into the show notes. So if anyone wants to uh, learn more information, check out the show notes, and you can also reach out to uh, Dr. Cody Peterson through LinkedIn. But you know, to be respectful of your time, I'd like to thank you again so much for you know taking some time on your busy day uh, to be on the podcast today. And I'm sure our listeners learn a lot about your journey and and your specialized field.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Tony. And then. Uh, we are working right now. So if you're a California pharmacist and you're wondering how can I get involved, I'm working with a couple really uh, just stellar pharmacists and we've started a, a California nonprofit, the the Pharmacist Cannabis Coalition of California. And we aim to help uh, kind of bridge the gap between the, the cannabis industry and pharmacy. And we hope to, to facilitate a nice relationship between them. Um, and that'll be in one of the show notes as well. And, and figure out where, where it is the pharmacists can help Grow this industry and push it forward because cannabis is medicine. Patients deserve access.